Please remain standing for the reading of today's gospel lesson from the book of John, chapter 13, verses 31 through 35. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man has been glorified, and God has been glorified in him. If God has been glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him at once. Little children, I am only with you a little longer. You will look for me. And as I said to the Jews, now I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. I give you a new commandment that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also should love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Well, grace and peace to each of you in the name of Christ. It is so, so good to be in worship with each of you. And uh, Diane, thank you for reading our lesson. And to choir and James and all of our musicians' strings, I don't think you could have picked a better anthem for this text today. What a beautiful, beautiful witness today uh, as we come to the end of our series called Together. We started six weeks ago, which dovetails with the work that we've been doing in our master site plan, our capital campaign for the next generation. And I can't think of a better way uh, to conclude that than with the anthem that we have heard sung together today. And the light that you were talking about in the Father's eyes, uh, I have seen that light this morning in parents and grandparents and family members in lieu of Charlotte and her initiation into the word love, into the word baptism, into the word Jesus, and how special it is to be with all of you today. Uh, we're at the end of the series called Together, and we've been talking about the fact that Every person who's baptized into Jesus Christ, who professes faith in our Lord, is called to be a disciple. You don't have to wear a stole. You don't have to wear a robe to be called. You're called as disciples and are gifted by the Holy Spirit to use those gifts, not as a solo act, but together in koinonia, in community, in what we call the body of Christ. And, and we've talked up to this point about our common call to, first of all, to worship. And we talked about how praise is the native language of our faith. It's not complaint, although we're pretty good at that. It's not the language of lamentation. It's the language of praise. It is good. And then we talked about our call to discipleship, to spiritual formation, that Jesus not only calls us to be disciples, which means a student or a learner of Jesus, but to disciple others as well. And then we talked about the fact that we've been called as ambassadors of reconciliation. And that was 2 Corinthians 5. Restored friendship, restored harmony between God and the world. Last week we talked about sacrifice, that sacrifice is when you give something of value so that something of greater value can be realized. But I want to finish today with what I think is the fundamental, primary, most important call of God in our lives, and that's the call to love. 
We've read from a part of John's gospel, which is a section called the farewell discourse. It's exclusive to the fourth gospel, peculiar to John's gospel, where in five chapters, this is chapters 13 through 17, those chapters contain Jesus's last words to his disciples before his death. If you read just before the text that Diane read for us, they're celebrating the Seder meal. It's Passover time in Jerusalem. And Jesus at the table, as he serves the bread and the cup, he assumes the role of a servant by washing his friend's feet. At the same time, we know that the backdrop of this particular scene is one of betrayal because Jesus has just predicted that Judas is going to deceive and betray him, which he does. And a few verses later, he will predict the denial of Simon Peter. But I'm not one to point fingers at these two because all 12 will desert Jesus in his hour of need, as have we on occasion. And yet John speaks of his pending fate the following day at Golgotha as glory. Sounds like a mix-up to me. It sounds like gory, maybe, but not glory. But then you see the word glorify five times in verses 31 and 32. Now, I'm not a rocket scientist, but I've been taught that repetition is the key to learning. So if you see in a text a repetitive word, it should get our attention. The word to glorify in the Hebrew means to honor. It means to magnify. And so what John is implying here is that the glory of God is about to be revealed in Jesus on the following day by his sacrificial and selfless love on a cross. Contrary to popular thought, a diamond is not the shape of love. It's a cross. Greater love has no one than one who lays down his life for his friends. This is the glory of God. It's also interesting to me that in this scene, Jesus addresses his friends who are fully grown men as little children. Now, that would be a little condescending if I stood up this morning and said, before I preach, boys and girls, what I'd like to tell you is, it sounds like a term of derision, but it isn't. It is a term of endearment. When Jesus refers to his followers as little children, it is a deep emotional attachment that they have with him. Rabbis would often in the first century address their students in this way, especially when it was clear that their days were numbered. And Jesus is speaking tenderly to those who are about to experience the deepest grief that a human being can know. He's preparing them for his absence for his departure, and he's also giving them an admonishment for the days that will follow. And this is what he says. I'm giving you a new commandment, that you are to love one another just as I have loved you. <laughs> you also should love one another, and by this will all people know that you belong to me if you have love one to another. Now, it seems a little strange to me 
that Jesus would refer to this commandment as being new because if you know Leviticus, it's, it's really about as old as the Torah. Leviticus 19.18 says, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against any of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. What you may not know is in the Hebrew language, there is a word for neighbor that refers only to kinfolk or to members of your own family. Jesus, however, in his time is going to enlarge the concept of neighbor. And you know when he does it, when he tells that tale of the Good Samaritan, you remember that? He's enlarging the notion of neighbor, whereas he tells it, an enemy actually proves to be neighbor. The ones you expect to be first responders, that is the priest and the lay leader, what do they do? They pass by on the other side while this despised half-breed gets into the ditch. And notice the Samaritan, at least in the way Jesus tells it, doesn't check the victim's ethnicity before he lends a hand. He doesn't do what I would have done. I would have called the Brentwood police and gotten a little background check before I checked on him. But not this man. He quickly acts on behalf of the injured party, regardless of his tribe. Fred Rogers, whose name is synonymous with neighbor, once told the story of when he was a little boy, he would sometimes watch the news at night, and he would become very fearful. He would see scary things in the news, and his mother would always say, Freddie, look for the helpers. You'll always find people who are helping, and you can be one of them. Now, little did Mrs. Rogers know that she was actually cultivating one of America's greatest neighbors. And Jesus is doing something similar. He's expanding the notion of neighbor beyond tribe, beyond kinsmen, to include the ones I don't want to be around, to include the outsider, the foreigner, the Gentile, the sinner, and even the enemy. And that's new. That is so Jesus. I want to share with you a challenging text from Jesus' Sermon on the Plain. You know the Sermon on the Mount, right? That's in Matthew chapters 5 through 7. The Sermon on the Plain is very similar to the Sermon on the Mount, but it's much shorter. That's why you like it better than the Sermon on the Mount. A shorter dose of preaching is always a little better, so we think. Luke 6:32. Listen to this. It's hard to hear. If you only love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do that. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend money, uh-oh, here comes business. If you lend to those from whom you hope to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much again. But love your enemies. Do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be little children. Amen to that. 
wow. You'll be little children of the Most High God. For God is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. So be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. That's new. That's a new command. It's not just reciprocal, it's unconditional. And yet, having said that, isn't it true from the Scripture that mercy does not exclude justice? They go together. The kind of injustice that we have seen in these last days in Israel is unspeakable. It's unfathomable. And the feelings that we have felt inside our hearts and minds are unspeakable. Thomas Aquinas, the 13th century monk, said, and I quote, mercy without justice is the mother of dissolution, and justice without mercy is just cruelty. It seems to me that when the balance between mercy and justice is lost, the wicked either go unpunished or are punished with unending brutality. And we're taught that justice and mercy go together. I'm reminded of Micah 6, 8. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. What does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with God. Justice is love, what love looks like in public. I love that. And tenderness is what love looks like in private. But they go together. The last time I was in Israel, which was last year, I learned from our Jewish guide about an organization called the Abraham Accords. Have you heard of it? It's a movement of people for peace promoting interfaith and intercultural dialogue to advance shalom, peace, among the three Abrahamic religions. Did you know that both Judaism, Christianity, and Islam all trace a common kinship back to Father Abraham? And the feeling among these people is if you can find a kinsperson where you can at least acknowledge our humanity, that perhaps there can be coexistence. What they're trying to do, their aim is to, to end radicalization in order to provide hope for children for the next generation. Radicalization is a process in which a group embraces an extremist ideology and then accepts, uses, and condones hatred and violence to achieve my particular political and ideological agenda. We've always had extremist groups. In the first century, there were zealots. You remember zealots who were Jewish believers who were willing to take up the sword. In our own day, there is Hamas, Hepzibah, Boko Haram, but there are also skinheads, Antifa, and Proud Boys, even in our own land. And whether it's right wing or left wing makes absolutely no difference. I long for the day when there is no right wing or left wing, just a wing <laughs> would be nice and a prayer. 
where we could find our common value, our common civility and worth in the fact that we are all made in the image of God whose nature is love. I was thinking about Dr. King this week who once said returning violence for violence multiplies violence, adding a deeper darkness to a night already devoid of stars. And we need to look into the stars. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. What makes this old commandment new is the clarifying line of Jesus. I want you to love each other, listen, just as I have loved you. Oh, I don't know if I can do that. Those moments you feel such hostility and vengeance for injustice, but justice and mercy go together. What's new is that we're to love each other as Jesus loved us. Well, how did he love you? Unconditionally. Selflessly. Unreservedly. Maya Angelou, before she died, came to Belmont And speaking of the transforming power of love in Christ, she said, the possibility that God really did love me, me, Maya Angelou, brought me to tears. I began to cry at the gravity and grandeur of it all because I knew somehow that if God loved me, that I could do wonderful things. I could attempt and risk great things. I could achieve almost anything For what can stand against me since one person with God constitutes a majority? Jesus goes on to say in the last verse in the text, by this shall all people know that you belong to me by the way that you love each other. You know what that means? It means that love is what validates your witness beyond these walls. Nothing else. It's, it's not your, your political leanings. It's not our ecclesiastical framework or denominational ties. It's none of that. It's not even your stance on social principles or doctrinal nuances. Jesus said, it is your capacity. It's my capacity to love as Christ has loved me. And that's what makes our witness believable to those beyond the walls. Now, I know on occasion, on occasion, not very often, when the world sees the church at odds with each other, dividing, fussing, splitting, demonizing each other, is it any wonder that they question the the sincerity of our faith? Tertullian, the second century church father, bishop of Carthage, once wrote of the Roman pagan culture, how they used to look at the the people of the church and say, see how they love each other? While we're killing each other, they're willing to die for each other. That was new. Mr. Wesley himself, our spiritual founder, spoke passionately about the transforming power of love when he said in one of his sermons, though we cannot think alike, Can we not love alike? 
May we not be of one heart, though we're not of one opinion. Without a doubt, he said, we may. Without a doubt, by God's grace, we will. And herein, all the children of God may unite, notwithstanding the smaller distinctions. Richard Haverson, who was U.S. chaplain of the Senate for many years, had convicting words when he said, in the beginning, the church was a movement of men and women centering on the living Christ. And then the church moved to Greece, where it became a philosophy. And then it moved to Rome, where it became an institution. And next, it moved to Europe, where it became a culture. And finally, to America, where it became an enterprise. We've talked a lot these last few weeks about mission and core values and master site plans. But do you know what the vision of Brentwood United Methodist Church is? It's the vision of this church. It's, it's very simple. I so wish, Zach, I could make it more complex for people who like complexity. But this is, this is the vision. To create a culture of love formed through a relationship with Jesus and others. Now, we didn't come up with that. <laughs> that, came, that comes right out of Jesus in the Bible. When someone asked, what's the bottom line? And he said, love God with all you've got and love your neighbor as yourself. And you don't get to choose the neighbor so that others will know who we are, not by our proximity to Chick-fil-A, but by our love. The steeple's coming back. We've had three promises broken, but it's coming back. And in three or four weeks, when we put it up on this edifice, this beautiful sanctuary, when you see it from afar, our vision is that people, when they see that spire, will say, that's a people who knows how to love. That's our call. Last word. Sometimes in this marathon of preaching on Sunday, from one service to the next, I'll run through the children's wing from 8.30 to 9.45, and I always run into them, kids who are on their way to Sunday school, and they're always excited. I saw her down, down the corridor, and when I got to her, I said, uh, do, do you enjoy Sunday school? She said, I love Sunday school, as though she was surprised that I would ask that question. And I said, why do you love Sunday school so much? And she said, because my teacher loves me. Listen, little children. That's what it's about. That child loves the church because the church loves her and is teaching her what it means to be loved and to love like Jesus. And so this little work that we're proposing to do today, it's all for love's sake, for love of God, for love of neighbor, for love of next generation, and everybody has something to share. 
Unequal gifts, of course, but equal sacrifice, yes. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword, no. In all things, we are more than conquerors through the one who loved us, and we are certain that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that's your call. And it's mine. Let us pray. We thank you, O oh God, today for love, for love received and love shared, for the body of Christ, for the church in which we are taught what it means to be unconditional. We thank you, God, for the privilege that's ours to share our prayers today at the altar and to share our gifts, our commitments to the future of this place and this mission. And we pray that in all that we do, that we would always do it with love so that others would know who and what we're about for Christ's sake, in whose name we pray, amen. We're going to conclude a little differently this morning. You have received, I hope, commitment cards for our three-year pledge campaign call together. You've received those in your bulletin, but they're also in the pew pocket. If you can't find one, I just happen to have some extras with me. I know that's a shocker. And what we would like to do is invite you to fill those out, to share those. If you are not ready today, then we'll have follow-up in the days to come. But if you're ready and you'd like to come and share, the boxes are here. And it's also important that we use the altar today of all days, that we bring our commitments not only to the future, but that we bring our prayers for the present now. We have much to pray about, of course. And so the altar is going to be open for a few minutes as you prepare, as we prepare to come. And music is going to be shared with us as we do so. And we'll allow plenty of time for that because we do want everybody to be in prayer as the body at the altar. And so we, we invite you now to share in that way.